Welcome to the WeGo Places podcast, where we catch up with WeGo grads who share with us the journey to their unique careers. I'm your host, Brian Turnbow, English teacher at WeGo since 2001, and you just heard intro music from Andy Georgiev, class of 2022. Today's interview, I catch up with Jessica Bergman, class of 2009, education researcher at UNICEF. Jessica will share with us how her path as an educator began in the western suburbs of Chicago and flourished into spanning the globe from Europe to Africa in her role investigating the challenges of education in developing nations. Joining us from the class of 2009 is Jessica Bergman. Jessica, can you tell us what you do? Yeah, so I am currently an education researcher with UNICEF's Office for Research in Accenti, uh, and I'm currently based in Florence, Italy, as of uh, September of 2021. So after you left WeGo, you went to Loyola. Did you know that you were going to find yourself in education? What was your coursework like there? Yeah, no, I actually had no plans of going into education when I went to Loyola. Um, I think like most students um, after high school, uh, I planned to do um, the pre-med track at Loyola. Um, Dr. Murphy in the um, anatomy and and physiology course uh, got me really interested in the human body. Um, But I very quickly learned after my first semester of coursework that um, chemistry was just not my passion. Um, so I always knew actually that education was uh, my life's work, but um, for, potentially I was just suppressing it for, for a while there. Um, and so once I made that transition and, and had the courage to change my major um, after my first semester, um, all of my coursework then uh, focused on um, kind of uh, preparing me to become a teacher. So I uh, majored in secondary education and English. And I got an English degree um, with a focus on uh, literature, um, global literature. And then I um, got my um, teaching certificate to teach high school. Where did you do your student teaching? So I was in an interesting position. Um, All of my coursework while I was doing my bachelor's degree was in Chicago Public Schools. So um, the great part about Loyola's program was um, as soon as my sophomore year, I was already doing kind of my clinical rotations and coursework in um, middle schools and high schools um, throughout the entire city of Chicago. Um, So the south side and the west side, and then obviously in Rogers Park, which is where um, Loyola is based. And during my student teaching, I was meant to teach at a high school on the north side of the city of Chicago. But unfortunately, at that time, um, Chicago public school teachers went on strike. So I was on the picket lines with them for my first few days and then um, was relocated to a Catholic school um, in in the um, kind of west part of the city and did my um, student teaching there. What were some of your favorite texts to explore with students? 
Oh, that's a good question. You know, it's been a while since I've been in the classroom. And even thinking back to my syllabus, I would have kind of a hard time um, remembering the books. But there was one that I used to teach for my um, sophomores in a world literature class called um, Like Water for Chocolate. And um, the high school that I taught at um, was in um, Aurora, on the east side of Aurora. Um, and I had a, a predominantly Latino population that I worked with. And I just remember being so passionate and excited about the fact that I had students who were kind of seeing themselves and their culture um, represented in a text, um, sometimes for the very first time in their education and their schooling. Um, and I just remember um, at that point, um, kind of thinking through the, the power of education and the power of kind of representation and how important it is um, for English and for um, kind of classrooms um, to really reflect the narratives and the, the culture and the lives of, of their students. So after your student teaching, did you uh, continue with the, the assignments or job at East Aurora? Yeah, so um, East Aurora was the first um, school that I had um, my kind of first full-time job at um, after uh, college graduation. Um, I actually graduated from Loyola semester early, which um, was quite ambitious of me. I'm, I'm still not sure how I um, configured that. Um, but in that semester, um, before starting a full-time um, kind of teaching job, I actually worked at a sandwich shop during the days and then did some um, tutoring uh, in the evenings just to maintain kind of contact with students. Um, so then, yeah, teaching at East Aurora was um, the first full-time job that I had after graduation. And I taught a sophomore world literature class and then a, um, at the time, a junior um, ACT and kind of college preparation course. Um, and I was there for two years and absolutely loved my time in the classroom. So what was the kind of uh, intrigue to then take your uh, education and go to uh, graduate school? What was, what was the kind of uh, leap or uh, fire that made you want to take that next step? Yeah, so during my time at Loyola, um, I really became a huge kind of social justice advocate. Um, I really believe in the power of education to kind of change the trajectory of an individual's life and for that individual to kind of go on and, and change the lives of, of others in their community. And so um, it was at Loyola, actually, that I um, got involved with a, an NGO um, that was doing education work in Uganda. So um, I actually traveled to Uganda for the first time in 2012, um, so right before I did my student teaching, actually. And I worked with the organization there um, for four weeks um, to do some work in schools. Um, at the time, um, we were focused on kind of helping schools to become financially self-sustainable so that they had the kind of financial resources they needed um, to keep their, their doors open and to educate um, as many students as, as possible. So um, it was actually through that work that I had in Uganda um, that was kind of the trajectory for me to move into um, international education. I had um, been focused on kind of U.S. education, um, both in teaching and then after I left the classroom, I transitioned to a Chicago-based nonprofit organization that was focused on college access and persistence. But um, every year that I was um, focused on education in the US, I was actually traveling during my summer, uh, my summers off to Uganda 
and continuing work with the NGO um, in Uganda to kind of improve the quality of education for, um, for students there. And that was kind of ultimately the, the catalyst for me deciding to um, go back and further my own education um, and pursue my master's in international education policy at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Um, so I could kind of stop living a, a dual life um, in kind of two, two silos and, and bring both of my existences together um, and, and try and find kind of a career that um, married the, the two passions that I really had. What was unique about the Harvard program that you said was able to kind of merge those two things together where you kind of had them separate? Did Were there many, was Harvard just the most unique program that was able to, again, consolidate that? Or And, and once you uh, arrived at Harvard, what was your coursework like to then kind of begin to amplify that type of uh, focus? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, one of the things that really drew me to Harvard was was actually not the name. Um, I know it's an Ivy League institution and it, it has a, a prestige for everyone, but I was really interested in trying to find a program where I could think at the systems level, um, how is it that we can really influence kind of policy and, and change so that um, it trickles down to um, kind of students um, en masse um, in countries around the world. And I was really interested um, because I had noticed that there are a lot of parallels or similarities um, in the challenges that I faced um, during my time in the classroom working at East Aurora and the experiences that teachers in secondary schools in Uganda were facing kind of on a, a daily basis as well. So the thing that I really um, liked about Harvard's program was kind of this comparative perspective and thinking about um, what, what is it that we can kind of learn from countries who are, are building effective systems and um, how is it that we can then kind of take some of those interventions and really contextualize them so that they work to support um, all students to go on to learn. Um, with Harvard, I focused a lot of my coursework on kind of, um, the, the practical aspects. So the, the unique thing about Harvard's master's degree is it's a one year kind of full-time program. Um, so I had to kind of quit my job and, and pack everything uh, that I owned and, and move out to Boston. Um, and I was the first person actually in my family to, to leave the Chicagoland area. So it was quite the caravan of me and my parents and my sister. We actually took um, two cars and, and moved all of my stuff out to school. Um, but my coursework was focused on um, kind of some of the generals when it comes to research methods and, and statistics and monitoring and evaluation of, of programs and interventions. And then um, more on the um, kind of policy landscape and how do you analyze policy and how do you improve policy and then um, because I came from a background of literacy and kind of teacher training and teacher development, um, I focused a lot of my coursework on kind of the brain science behind literacy development um, and thinking more from a kind of curricular perspective, um, what is it that needs to be in place within, within the kind of classroom in order for, for students to learn. That's such an an incredible intersection of so many different disciplines. You, you mentioned policy, there's the economics, there's the cultural sensitivities, there's the um, the te teaching techniques, and, and then even underneath that are the just kind of basic cognitive awareness of what is actual learning and all of that. I, I was wondering, as you take 
what you took from your time at Harvard and you applied that, which one of those did you think was the most, had the most kind of force magnifier effect when you begin to design your uh, ideas for uh, education policy? Yeah, um, so it's it's quite a complex question because I really see it being um, kind of a holistic, whole systems approach, right? Because um, we know that students are only spending kind of a percentage or portion of their time in the classroom, and then they're also kind of going back home and spending the remainder of the time um, at home and, and kind of in the community. And so um, learning, we need to perceive learning as happening everywhere instead of learning happening only in the context of, of the classroom. And so um, one of the things I was really um, kind of interested in, or I guess learned throughout my time at Harvard was um, there's not a, a kind of one size fits all approach when we're thinking about interventions or we're thinking about effective policies. Um, we know that there's evidence to say that um, certain types of interventions are, are effective, but um, it, it really comes down to um, what resources are available in the community, um, what kind of political willpower there is um, to kind of implement some of those policies and reforms. Um, and ultimately, kind of on the day-to-day -day basis, um, how is it that we equip parents with the resources they need um, to be engaged in their child's learning? Um, how is it that we keep teachers motivated um, to kind of be in the classroom um, rather than absent from, from school um, and prepare them to be agents of change? And so, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of a whole systems approach. And I, I don't know that there's a, a single solution. If, if there were, I'm, I'm not sure I would have any more work to do. <laughs> in, in thinking about things systemically uh, like that, what was maybe the, the most encouraging application of the things that you bring to uh, what you do now in terms of thinking about systems in that way? Yeah, um, I guess it's really thinking about, um, I guess it's really to me thinking about how is it that we get kind of the, the research and the evidence in the hand of, of decision makers and how is it that we then um, kind of empower them to go on to, to implement effective solutions. So um, a lot of the work that I'm doing right now um, in my role with, with UNICEF is um, thinking about kind of designing research for use and how is it that we um, work alongside ministries of education? Um, how is it that we work alongside kind of schools and parents and communities um, to, to develop research and design research to answer some of these questions when it comes to um, how do we keep parents kind of engaged in their child's learning or um, how is it that we um, kind of improve learning for um, multilingual students or um, how is it that we um, kind of ensure that um, schools remain safe spaces or protective um, spaces for, for all students? And um, we're trying to kind of work with decision makers from, from the outset to figure out um, what are those kind of critical questions that, that we really need to generate more evidence and answers for? And how is it that we kind of build the capacity at the systems level to design research and, and generate evidence um, kind of within the country so that um, everything has kind of a, a local solution or, or, or a local answer. And all of that information is kind of being fed into the system as it's being generated so that um, kind of decisions are, are being made um, with the most data and, and evidence that we have available. 
Um, so, so I find that to be quite, quite interesting. And there's a couple of programs that we're um, kind of working on at, at um, UNICEF and Incenti that are really thinking about kind of how, how we design research um, to, to ultimately make sure that um, decision makers have the answers that they need to, to scale effective solutions in their countries. Did you have a like a thesis for your graduate work? Like what what did that look like? Yeah, so um, at Harvard, actually, because it's a one year program, um, the way that my program was structured, I didn't have to um, to write a thesis, but I did have to write kind of several capstone projects. Um, one of which was actually a, a consultation that I did with um, with UNICEF at the time, um, working with the, the office um, in New York headquarters um, to analyze their teacher training programs across 190 country offices that they have around the world. And um, looking at some of the markers for, um, for quality that we know are kind of effective in both um, pre-service education for teachers, so preparing them before they enter their classroom, and then kind of ongoing professional development once they're in their classroom. Um, so I had to do some kind of analysis and a, a write-up of, of that to submit back to UNICEF and thinking about what recommendations um, they could use to ultimately improve um, their programs. Um, and then a, a kind of another capstone project that I um, had to complete was focused on um, kind of bilingual and multilingual students and the, the pedagogies that teachers can use within the classroom to, to really support those students. And that project came um, out of um, the, the experiences that I'd had in Uganda, where um, the teachers that I had kind of um, worked alongside um, were, were in classrooms where their mother tongue language um, didn't align with their students' mother tongue language, and yet um, kind of mother tongue instruction was, was what was recommended by the Ministry of Education for the early grades of, of primary school. And so you had sometimes um, six, seven different kind of mother tongue languages represented by students in a classroom, um, and yet the, the teacher didn't always share that language. And so how is it that you can have kind of effective teaching practices when there's such um, kind of language diversity? Um, the, the great thing that um, I, I loved about my experience at Harvard was I also did some kind of um, uh, coursework or, or internships, I guess, although they weren't really internships in the formal sense. But um, I had the opportunity to travel to Burkina Faso, which is a country in West Africa, and work with the Ministry of Education there for two weeks um, in, in my J term, um, focused on a curriculum reform that the country was trying to implement at the time, um, and, and thinking through the mechanisms for how to support teachers to ultimately adopt that curriculum and, and implement it in their classrooms and the kind of training and resources and capacity that would be needed uh, there. Um, so that was uh, really exciting and, and an opportunity to kind of work directly with, with policymakers and applying some of the principles and practices I had been learning in the classroom um, to a, a very real life setting. And then um, one of the other opportunities I had, I was a part of a, a, um, a humanitarian kind of policy group um, that was focused on um, kind of refugee and, and migrant um, policy. Um, specifically in the Mediterranean. And so I had an opportunity over my spring break um, to travel to uh, Lesbos, Greece, uh, to work in several refugee camps um, there with uh, an NGO 
and think about um, kind of how how to structure learning opportunities for um, some of the minors and, and youth that were in the camp and and also thinking through some of the psychosocial kind of support and um, mental health care um, that that children and, and adolescents so desperately needed and and what the NGO could provide to kind of uh, uh, bridge the gap in, in service delivery that um, we were seeing. Um, so it was a, a really fascinating kind of um, opportunity to get some of that kind of practical um, practical experience alongside more of the formal coursework uh, in the classroom. You did that all in a year. <laughs> all in one incredible. year. And you know, wow. I still prioritized sleeping uh, during that. I was going to say, so. <laughs> like, uh, is there any part of that involved? Um, do they, I mean, is breath part of the curriculum too? My goodness. Yeah. <laughs> That's, okay. I have a ton of questions to follow up with that. So first thing that you had mentioned when you were doing kind of a, uh, a very deep dive, looking at all the various different educational approaches throughout the world that uh, the UNICEF programs had oftentimes in education, Finland and the Scandinavian models are ones that are very heralded and all that. I was wondering though, if what were, what were some of the more, what were the patterns that you found to be successful when you were doing your deep dive into your research? Yeah. So a lot of it had to do with equipping teachers with kind of the, the subject knowledge that they needed to be effective in their classrooms. So what we realized was a lot of the kind of teacher preparation courses um, didn't always focus on preparing teachers to understand the very content in which they were required to teach. And one of the things I actually saw when I was um, working in, in Uganda was um, just how low kind of some of that subject knowledge matter was for teachers where, um, you know, they were teaching kind of concepts, um, grammar and, and kind of English concepts um, com- completely incorrectly because their subject knowledge was actually um, so low. And so um, one of the recommendations to come out of that was um, to really focus on, on filling the kind of subject knowledge gap for teachers and making sure that they themselves had the skills um, that were, were required um, to, to teach their curriculum. Um, and then the other piece was focused kind of more on the, the how to teach. So um, oftentimes we found that within some of these programs, they were kind of so short in nature, um, potentially a, a one or two day kind of workshop where teachers maybe travel to the capital and then go back to their respective schools or classrooms. And there's no real kind of follow up or, or practical um, kind of coaching for um, how they should implement or adopt some of the, the practices in their classrooms. And so there's a real kind of implementation gap of what is it that somebody's telling me to do versus um, how is it that I actually do those things in, in oftentimes very challenging circumstances. And so one of the other kind of findings or, or recommendations to come out of, of um, that work that I was doing um, was, was to really think about how is it that you sustain support to teachers over time um, through kind of pedagogical coaching, um, through empowering uh, school principals and head teachers um, to, to be instructional coaches um, for their teachers in the school and kind of building communities of practice and thinking about how teachers can exchange knowledge and, and learn from one another um, to really improve their, their classroom um, teaching practices. Um, so those were kind of two of the, the key things that kind of came, came out. And um, 
I'm not sure to what extent those findings were ultimately used, uh, because obviously it's, it's quite a, a big global landscape. Um, and UNICEF is quite a decentralized organization. So um, country offices really have um, kind of the, the agency to, to design their programs. But um, it was really exciting work to be able to undertake such a robust analysis and um, to think about the potential it could have in, in informing how these programs are designed moving forward. The, the other thing that I thought was interesting, you were, when you were talking about the, the research about the impactfulness about the mother tongue and how that resonates more, could you maybe explain that one more time? Because I, I've, I came across a, a study of that recently where they were talking about the type of very competitive exams in the New York system of, uh, of um, schools, of the very competitive schools there. And they, they had noticed that there, where there was a, a benefit to a review schedule had to do with the dynamic of the mother tongue with the first generation students. I, I, I'm just very curious if you could maybe uh, explain that again. Sure, yeah. So um, with mother tongue instruction, it's something that um, has been focused on in kind of the, the global education sector for, for quite some time. But um, oftentimes what we find is, um, you know, countries have kind of official languages and they they sometimes are the colonial language. And then there's also a multitude of, of kind of mother tongue um, languages that, that are represented. The linguistic diversity in Uganda is, is uh, quite unique. And um, when we're thinking about um, kind of mother tongue language, we're thinking about really teaching students in a language that they, they know and understand. So um, in Uganda, for example, um, I, I would see um, children speaking a kind of mother tongue language at home. Um, sometimes their parents have um, kind of English literacy. Other times their parents have not gone um, through formal schooling and therefore um, have kind of limited literacy skills themselves. Um, but, but you have students who are kind of uh, learning and speaking in that mother tongue in the household, but then going to school and schools are requiring them to kind of uh, learn in a, a different language. And what we know from kind of the evidence and the research is that um, students actually kind of learn best in their first language and unlocking some of the um, kind of skills in their first language allows them to then um, kind of transfer those skills to a, a second language acquisition. And so there's a lot of countries who are moving towards um, kind of an approach where in the early grades of primary school, um, usually first grade, second grade, up to third grade, um, in the case of Uganda, um, teachers are, are kind of meant to teach students in their mother tongue language or in the local language um, so that there's um, kind of already that, that familiarity there. Um, the challenge then becomes, though, is the mother tongue the, the same for all students in the classroom? And that's where um, you have the, the beauty of linguistic diversity, but also the, the challenge and so what you find in, in practice versus the policy in Uganda, for example, the policy asks teachers to, to teach in the mother tongue language up to grade three. But in practice, if there's that um, kind of linguistic diversity represented in the classroom, um, teachers actually kind of def defer back to teaching in English um, because it's a, a quote unquote universal language that um, students um, should move towards understanding and is ultimately what kind of be assessed in at the end of their, their primary education. Um, but unfortunately, students don't oftentimes have kind of the foundations of language and the foundations of literacy established 
um, to, to really latch on to um, their English language learning. And so it's, it's one of the things that contributes to um, kind of what, what we're seeing in global education, which is um, super high, we call it learning poverty rates, um, students who are not able to kind of read and understand very simple stories um, by the age of 10. And um, this learning poverty rate um, globally is just over half of children. So 53% of children um, are not able to read and understand a simple story by age 10. Um, and with COVID-19 and, and school closures and students being out of school, um, in some cases for, for almost two years, um, there's predictions, uh, and this was another kind of report that I worked on um, here in my time with UNICEF, um, that that percentage will actually increase to 70%. So 70% of children who reach the age of 10 and are not able to read and understand a, a simple text. What was then your, your recommendation then for at the end of that research? No, actually, so that's not what my research at that point um, kind of really focused on. Um, it was more so some of the kind of practical, um, practical ways that um, teachers could adopt certain kind of practices in their cla- classroom to support ah. um, kind of transitioning between multi- uh, multiple languages. Um, so, so this kind of latest evidence or, or research on this kind of learning poverty rate um, wasn't really connected at all to um, this kind of um, mother tongue and multilingual education um, kind of kind of piece. It was a little bit uh, a little bit separate. You you mentioned challenges, and when you were talking about the mother tongue, and then you you add one more layer to this in your time when you were um, in in Greece and you were tending to the educational needs of the uh, the migrants. Um, now they have trauma uh, on top of that as well. How did you then, I mean, you, you've had so many various different challenges. What, what did you learn from the challenge of the trauma of a refugee? And, and how did that inform how, like, what you learned from that moment on? Yeah, um, I think one of the kind of key lessons that I learned here and something that I, I think I always knew as an educator, which is... Um, to really see your students as as humans first. Um, I think oftentimes anyone who's kind of working outside of education um, sort of believes still in the idea that um, kind of schools and teachers are just the kind of depositors of, of knowledge. But um, students really need to have kind of this, this um these multitude of supports to even be able to enter into a classroom as their kind of whole selves and and be ready to learn. And I think one of the things that I really saw um, kind of working with um, refugees and and migrants um, in in Lesbos was um, just how important it is to kind of nurture that that whole being and to to really see the whole student as as a, a person and and not just somebody who you're depositing knowledge on or, or only talking about um, kind of learning outcomes. And so thinking about um, how is it that we make sure that um, students are, are accessing three nutritious meals every day? And how is it that we make sure that they have consistent access to a social worker and a psychologist um, to, to deal with the trauma of, of their journey to Greece um, and the trauma of being confined to um, these um, kind of suffocating tents um, within the camp? And um, how is it that you help them to cope with 
um, the very difficult um, kind of realizations that some of them are having on being separated um, from their parents or um, having witnessed kind of individuals who, who have died along the journey. And so um, I, I think through that experience, it, it really um, kind of reaffirmed for me that um, as an educator and, and as an education system, we, we really have to be thinking much more um, beyond just learning and also focused on on well-being um, and what are kind of those those comprehensive wraparound supports that students really need so that um, they they can learn, but they can also um, kind of be be well. I mean, in, in speaking of wellness, I mean, you were in a you're in a very precarious emotional state there yourself, witnessing people in the most challenging time in their life in that particular uncertain status. How did you kind of emotionally prepare yourself to be able to be around the type of emotional challenges of the people that you were um, both serving, but then also learning from as well? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so challenging. And I'm glad you asked that question, because it's something that um, kind of humanitarian workers and development workers and, and I, I consider myself kind of amongst that group, although um, not at the moment, but um, that, that secondhand trauma that you experience when you are working with affected populations and communities, it, it is real. And so um, you do have to really be conscious of, of how much you can, you can give and um, recognize some of the kind of signs of, of fatigue and burnout for yourself. And so um, practicing self-care and kind of self-compassion is, is really important. Um, and I've, I've learned that through all of my experiences kind of um, working, working abroad. Um, and for me, it's really um, taking time to um, kind of journal and, and reflect at the end of the evenings. Um, I'm definitely a big book nerd, um, of course, because I used to be an English teacher. And so um, taking time to, to kind of read and, and decompress and um, kind of enter into a, a different narrative um, for a sort of escape. Um, but then also just really kind of relying on my community. I think um, having moved every couple of years over the course of, of um, the time since I graduated from college, um, I have a lot of friends in a lot of places who, who have done kind of similar work to me, but also very different work. And so um, just reaching out um, to other people to kind of talk and to um, have that space to, to really kind of debrief and then um, of course, kind of seeking your own mental health support when you need it. So um, advocating for yourself and seeking therapy and, and seeking kind of me mental health professional support. Um, and there were definitely times where I, I sought out those resources and, and encourage anyone to do so if, if they're working with kind of vulnerable populations and, and really absorbing some of that secondhand trauma. Um, it's, it's, it's quite challenging. I think that is so important to hear that, you know, to, to take away the type of um, maybe reluctance to seek out help when uh, one is trying to process the things that which they can't unsee and try to try to sort out what that is. I think it's just so important what you just said there. At, upon graduation from uh, Harvard Graduate School, you did you go directly to uh, UNICEF? No, um, no, of course, my story can't be that, um, that simple. So 
Um, I actually, I spent a few months, of course, like everyone else, um, with a lot of student loan debt and um, a lot of uh, job applications that went unanswered. And then I made the decision to um, to kind of pack uh, everything that I owned into two suitcases and move to Uganda um, full time. So I um, picked up a, a short-term contract with the NGO that I had kind of um, started doing work with uh, during my time at, at Loyola and continued over the summers, but um, decided to kind of work with them full-time. And then um, while I was in Uganda, I actually ended up um, landing a, a different contract with the humanitarian organization there, um, which was actually kind of my detour from education for about a year. Um, I was working with them to build um, geospatial data. Um, so making sure that there was map data available for kind of humanitarian um, disasters and kind of crisis situations um, in order to make sure that um, kind of essential service providers could access uh, vulnerable populations and communities um, and deliver kind of life-saving critical, um, critical aid. So I uh, managed um, their community programs um, and kind of training programs um, for about a year. And then um, I got to the point where I just started kind of hearing about COVID um, in early 2020 and wanted to make the formal shift back into education because, um, again, I kind of firmly believe it to be my life's work. And so I um, actually ended up moving to um, Washington, D.C., um, got on a plane the day before Uganda's airport closed in March of 2020, um, and worked for an education think tank there for about a year and a half before I got the job offer from from UNICEF. So um, to anyone out there who's who's listening, um, your story doesn't have to be linear and you don't have to stay in one job forever. And I'm definitely a, a testimony to that. <laughs> <laughs> The uh, so I was wondering maybe not everyone knows or we hear the term think tank. Uh, what is what does that entail when um, at, when you are at a think tank and what are the what are the various functions uh, of that particular type of entity and which which think tank was it? Yeah, so I worked with the Education Commission, which is kind of a small um, think tank research policy institute, um, kind of working out of Washington, D.C. And um, it's there that they were kind of focused on on a couple of different things in terms of improving global, global education. Um, so the first was, how is it that we make sure that education systems are kind of adequately financed and making sure that um, the kind of financial resources are, are there for quality education to improve. Um, the second was thinking about um, kind of the education workforce and how is it that we um, kind of better equip and train not just teachers, but also school leaders and other types of support staff um, to, to be more effective kind of in their work. Um, the third was thinking about kind of the, the learning um, and how is it that we kind of transform learning approaches in the classroom, um, leveraging digital technologies, um, leveraging kind of innovative pedagogical approaches. Um, and then the fourth, uh, and this was the, the area that I was focused on, was kind of more of the, um, the implementation and how is it that you kind of um, take what we've, we've learned is successful um, and make sure that you can implement kind of successful solutions at, at scale. So 
once governments or um, in this case, ministries of education have kind of designed their policies, um, how is it that you can effectively implement those policies kind of at the, the local level? And so um, I was there for, yeah, a year and a half. And um, out of that work, I actually led on a lot of research on um, kind of the effects of, of COVID-19 and school closures on um, children and youth, um, particularly in, in low and middle income countries. And I think it was that work um, kind of on, on the effects of, of COVID actually um, that, that helped me to land um, my, my current position with UNICEF. Is it difficult to um, uh, to to land the particular paperwork and the bureaucracy for that? Just out of curiosity. Um, no, I mean, I guess one of the nice things about UNICEF is they um, are are helpful in the process. But um, I had to take quite a bit of initiative on my own to to really make it happen. But um, I always say, where there's a will, there's a way, and when you have the motivation and drive, you 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 figure out a way to make it happen. So um, when I moved to Uganda, it was a bit different because you you could at the time, I'm, I'm not sure this is the case anymore, but I could kind of apply for my uh, my visa on arrival. Um, in Italy, that, that wasn't the case. And so um, I had to kind of collect all of my paperwork and then um, barter with the, the Italian consulate in DC to actually schedule me an appointment because at that time they were closed um, because of COVID. They weren't really allowing for anyone to come in. Um, but I said, I have to move for this job. They're expecting me in, um, in six weeks time. And so it took a lot of energy and a lot of patience um, to kind of get the appointments that I needed. But um, ultimately, uh, yeah, it's, it's not easy, but I find that it's always, it's always worthwhile. Um, and so living abroad and, and even traveling abroad, I think has been, um, one of the, the great experiences of, of my 30 years of, of living so far. It's, uh, it's just so, so fantastic. So you're in Italy now. When is your next trip to Uganda uh, or, 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 or abroad? Yeah, so at the moment, we're kind of in some restrictions in terms of um, travel. So um, I am working on a project with Lesotho, which is a small country um, kind of located in South Africa. Actually, it's a landlocked country um, surrounded by, by South Africa. Um, and unfortunately, I'm not able to, to travel there um, at the moment because of, of different restrictions with, um, with Omicron. And so um, I fear that I might be confined um, to Florence for, for longer than I had anticipated. But um, of course, Florence is um, kind of a, a cultural landmark and, and such a beautiful place to be. So I, I can't really complain. But um, at this point, no, say, no I don't know that the, uh, the violins didn't come out for the uh, being confined to Florence. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't expect them. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Um, so the new research that you're planning in, in Lesotho, is, is it going to be a similar kind of uh, approach that you've done before or do you have a, a, a new focus for it? Yeah, so um, this project will be on kind of evaluating the country's um, response to um, to COVID nineteen in education, and so it's it's sort of an extension of some of the work, the ongoing work and analysis that I've done at a, a global scale. But now it's kind of thinking about um, what does that look like in in one kind of country context, and so. 
Um, we'll be looking at kind of three areas. Um, the first is the effectiveness of their kind of remote learning solutions um, and how many students they were able to kind of reach through those remote learning modalities, um, thinking about what the most kind of effective platforms and tools were. Um, and also thinking about kind of which students were, were left behind and what that means for kind of planning for the future. Um, if, if we're honest, we have to admit that um, school closures probably are going to continue at, at some point in our futures, um, whether that's because of um, natural disasters or, or other humanitarian crises or potentially another global pandemic. And so how is it that systems can kind of um, become more, more resilient and, and prepare for that? Um, and it's also thinking about kind of some of those remote learning solutions. What, what can we learn in order to bring more children into the education system? So um, we, we know that there's still some children who are out of school and, and, and aren't accessing formal schooling. Um, are there some of those um, kind of um, tools that we've, we've developed through remote learning that um, would actually allow out of school children to, to benefit? Um, we're, we're also looking at kind of the steps that schools took for safe reopenings. So um, how is it that the kind of Ministry of Education was able to develop kind of guidance and, and provide resources to schools when it comes to um, water, sanitation and, and hygiene facilities, um, thinking obviously about hand washing stations, which aren't always available at schools, um, thinking about um, kind of masks and other PPE um, so, so evaluating kind of the, the response there. And then um, the last piece that we'll be, um, we'll be uh, looking at is kind of ultimately what we're starting to see in, in the numbers of students that are returning to school and what are kind of the effective mechanisms to make sure that um, parents are, are kind of re-enrolling children. And if they're not re-enrolling, um, what are some of the, the kind of barriers and blockers and, and how do we try to remove those? At, in your kind of observation in during the COVID and, and all of that, what has been the most maybe successful remedy to maybe bring students back to a type of very successful uh, educational context? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's complex because there's a lot of kind of factors that have to be um, kind of put in place. But um, one thing that I've seen that's really critical, obviously, is is making sure that schools can be kind of safe safe places um, for students to return to. Um, like I mentioned, there's so many schools that don't have kind of the the current equipment to to make sure that um, students and teachers can um, social distance, and there's not always kind of ventilation available, and there's not hand washing stations available, etc. Um, so making sure that kind of some of that essential kind of equipment is in place, but then um, really making sure that there is kind of messaging and communications to parents and communities around those measures that are being taken so that um, there's kind of that, that trust and, and rebuilding that trust um, to make sure that children return to learning. And then, of course, I mean, there's huge economic um, kind of barriers and burdens um, that have only been exacerbated by COVID-19. So what we've seen is um, a lot of children and youth have actually um, turned to the labor market. Um, and we've seen an increase in, in child labor. We've seen kind of increases in um, girls who are, are getting pregnant. 
And so um, we, we've, we're still seeing countries who have policies that kind of ban or, or bar um, pregnant um, girls from returning to school, um, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. So that's kind of a, a barrier that needs to be removed. And then um, thinking about how to incentivize um, families to have children return to schooling who are now kind of providing um, economic um, income to the family. Um, and some countries have kind of adopted um, conditional cash transfers. So um, kind of providing subsidies to families and saying, okay, we'll, we'll give you some, some money so that there's an incentive then for children to, to go to school because there's, there's no income kind of lost. And so those are some of the measures, but then of course um, there's a multitude that are available for countries and it's, it's really figuring out what, what works in those contexts. Jessica, where do, where, do you, where do you see yourself maybe in five, 10 years in this line of work? <laughs> oh man, that's a great question. To be honest, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I would love to continue kind of in this line of work. Um, right now, obviously, I'm, I'm kind of focused on some of the research and evidence generation, but um, I've also kind of thought about going back and, and potentially doing more of that kind of direct programming and, and designing and implementing programs um, potentially out of a country office or um, for an NGO like I'd worked for in the past. Um, so so to, be, uh, to be honest, I, I don't really have an answer and I prefer to keep it that way. Um, I like to be flexible and kind of go where the <laughs> opportunity is and, and go where, where I'm excited to rather than um, kind of living a life where I, I think that there's certain milestones that I have to, to hit and then um, ultimately being disappointed if maybe I don't achieve it. Jessica, do you have any recommendations for real kind of essential books that you thought are, that were formative for you in your education as a teacher and also in the policy work that you do? Sure. Um, there's kind of two that I've actually been going back and, and rereading, and maybe they're a little less focused on um, education necessarily, but um, kind of thinking more about um, global development, because of course, um, education also doesn't exist in a, a silo. We have to think about how it interacts with, um, with health and nutrition, etc. Um, but one that I really enjoyed is um, Development as Freedom um, by Amartya Sen. And um, with that, it's, it's really thinking through the international development landscape and um, kind of how to empower communities and, and really build sustainability into um, kind of economic development so that um, these, these systems can kind of speak together in, in harmony. And um, the second that I've, I've just started reading, but um, I've enjoyed it's um, the, the bottom billion, um, why the poorest countries are kind of failing and, and what can be done about it. And thinking about, again, kind of with this more solutions oriented approach, um, where are some of the kind of best investments that, that we've seen and um, what are some of the, the trade-offs, so to speak, in making those investments? Um, for, for countries who are, are dealing with um, very limited resources. Um, so those are kind of, of two that I've enjoyed. But um, to be honest, uh, at this point, I, I try not to um, spend too much time on the, um, the academic books and um, spend much more time on, on trying to make my way through the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> Jessica, you wouldn't do what you do if you weren't kind of by default an optimist and you've you've met so many people and have traveled so many places uh, I was wondering what are some of the things that kind of 
make you optimistic and give you hope that you've seen uh, about human nature and all the things that have uh, that you have seen already? Yeah, I I think I think throughout all of my travels and kind of all of my experiences, I've just I've recognized that um, you know. Every child and every individual has the right to an education and they also have the kind of potential to learn. And um, not every child is, is fortunate enough to be kind of born in a certain zip code or, or even in a certain country. Um, but what you recognize when you um, kind of work in some of these communities is um, even if, if we perceive them to be quote unquote disadvantaged, there's still so much kind of wealth and richness that's happening there when it comes to um, the way that a community comes, comes together. Um, and I, I think I've just been inspired by um, kind of the way that um, parents have sacrificed to, to make sure that their child is able to go to school and um, kind of teachers have sacrificed um, their kind of income or their well-being, et cetera, to make sure that their their students are kind of being successful. And I think throughout all of those trajectories, I've just been kind of inspired by the fact that, um, you know, even if you don't have um, the the resources um, kind of needed, but you have the the passion and the will and the desire um, that there's a way for it to kind of all, all come together. And, um, I think you have to remain an optimist in, in this line of work and you have to kind of believe in the, the power and the potential for, for every child to go on and live a, a healthy and, and productive life. And, um, you, you really see a lot of sacrifices that are being made by, by individuals to, to make it all happen. That is so, that's so great. Jessica, you've been so generous with your time. Uh, for those of you that are listening, uh, I, this is a uh, early afternoon for me in West Chicago uh, at the high school recording this, but she is uh, spending uh, her time on a Friday night recording this from uh, from Florence, uh, Italy. So I'm so grateful for the time that you've uh, you've given me uh, today. And I, I like to end interviews uh, with uh, former Wildcats. Um, that if you could give some tips for success, uh, that would be uh, very beneficial for them. Uh, those that are listening today, what would you, what would you give them? Sure, um, I think my first tip would be um, to be courageous and um, to make sure that you recognize your own kind of potential um, and and remain confident in your your ability to do whatever it is that you kind of set your mind to. Um, I think the second is is to be kind of humble in that process and to be unafraid to ask for help and support and guidance um, throughout that journey. Um, and I think the third would be um, kind of being open to the the possibilities. Um, as you've heard through this um, this story, I was um, kind of the first person in my family to um, to go to college and, and graduate from college. I um, went on to get my master's degree, which my parents never thought anyone in my family would do. I've lived and traveled in more countries than probably my my whole extended family combined. And I think um, you have to be kind of courageous to to set your mind on something and and to just go for it and to to not be afraid. And so I think that's my my biggest advice, um, both for for professional life, but also for for personal life, 
um, and to take advantage of the people who are there to support you, um, to, to really know that there are people in your corner who want you to succeed um, and, and to ask them for, for help and connections and resources kind of every step of, of that journey. Um, building that community has been so, so important to my trajectory. And I, I really encourage others to, um, to invest in, in that community as well. Jessica, thank you so much. I've learned a ton and I know when I'm editing this, I'm going to kick myself that I didn't follow up with other questions. Maybe that'll be another day uh, to to discuss uh, that type of stuff. (laughs) Thank you so much. This was great. Yeah, of course. Very happy to do it. And um, hopefully if even just one person hears and is inspired by the story, then I've, I've done my job. So thanks for providing the, the platform. This is really exciting. And um, I've, I've listened to a lot of these, actually. So it's always really cool to see what, um, what Wildcats have been up to. Ah, that's great. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Help spread the word about We Go Places podcast by sharing this episode with one other wildcat. As always, find past and future episodes on Apple or Google Podcasts or any other platform. Just search We Go Vox. That's We Go V-O-X. You can also stay current by following us on Facebook at We Go Places Podcast or on Twitter at We Go Places.